Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Super excited that I have with me on the podcast, Stephen Moe. Stephen's a partner at Parryfield Lawyers and has 20 years experience practicing throughout New Zealand, Australia, England and Japan. As an expert in commercial law, Stephen has helped a multitude of tech companies, startups, charities, purpose-driven businesses. He aims to empower, impact and educate others through the provision of free legal resources and the creation of the Impact Unconference. He is also the host and founder of the Seeds podcast, on which he interviews inspiring guests every week and often writes uh, for publications like Stuff and the Spinoff. And more recently, uh, Stephen has become the presenter of the Board Matters podcast, which is presented by uh, the Institute of Directors. Good morning, Stephen Moe. How are you? I'm doing great, Chris. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to our time together. Thank you for having me. Hey, look, tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I know this is one area you're really big in with your podcast because I've listened to lots of them. And I'd encourage listeners to, uh, if you're not already following Stephen Moe on the Seeds podcast or the Board Matters, um, you know, click on there and follow it. Uh, I, I've got a lot out of your episodes. I won't say I've listened to all 300, but I've listened to a good selected, uh, you know, maybe, I think maybe 20 by now. Um, so... Yeah, well, well, we'll get into the to that podcasting more towards the end, but let, let's learn a little bit more about you. Now, you're in Christchurch. Are you, are you a Christchurch born, bred native, or where, where are you originally from? Yeah, so as soon as I open my mouth, people hear my accent, and they make assumptions that I've just recently arrived in New Zealand, um, or you know that this this isn't a place that I know much about. But actually, it's quite far away from that. The truth is, um, my father was a marine biologist, so it was a very specialist role in the 1980s, and so that brought us to New Zealand in 1983, and I was seven years old. Yes. Um, so I've kept my accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand, mm. and we we lived in. A place just north of Oamaru called Papakayo. It's yes. a very small place right by the Waitaki River. And my father was raising salmon on the river, and I was going to standard three and four, like a class was combined. It was that small of a rural school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved to Christchurch in 1989. And in so from 1989, I was basically here. Um, going to high school. And then I went to Canterbury University and studied law from 1995 to 2000. And so again, Canterbury, you know, Contemporaries through and through, Crusaders supporter, no doubt. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, But then I, my first um, job uh, was actually in Wellington. So I've, Mm -hmm. I've practiced in multiple cities um, and I was working at Russell McVeigh there for three years um, in their corporate and commercial team. Um, So spent some time there, met my wife in Wellington. And then, so this was about 2004 ish. And we thought, let's go on a one year OE. 
So we went to London and I started working for one of the biggest law firms uh, in the world called Norton Rose Fulbright. So that has about 4,000 lawyers in 55 offices, very different, obviously, to a New Zealand-based firm. Um, and was that, was, that in their, was that in their commercial team? Well, what are their many yeah, commercial so teams? I was always doing yeah. corporate commercial mergers and acquisitions, IPOs. That was the, the nature. I think the biggest IPO I helped out on was about a two billion pound IPO in the London Stock Exchange. So that was literally 75 lawyers working for six months, 12 hour days, you know, like very intense. You must to have been eating, dreaming, sleeping about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. And so the big law firm, so I've done, you know, big New Zealand law firm, but then much bigger international law firm. And I speak Japanese because I'd lived in Japan for a year when I was 20. Oh, wow. What um, part of Japan did you live in? I was in, I went to Niigata, which is right near Nagano. So it was when the Nagano Olympics were on. Oh, wow. So I was able to <laughs> yeah. clean the floors of the hotel in the morning and ski all afternoon. So, so I, I take it, was, it that's in the north of Japan. Um, is that is that right? Oh, yeah, sorry, because well, my geography is terrible when it comes to Japan. I've actually never been to Japan. I'm hoping to go next year. So maybe you can teach me. Oh, well, Japanese one day phrase. you should go for sure. Yeah. It's an amazing country. Lots of people think it's just about about the big cities. And it's true that Tokyo is massive. There's literally mm. 25 million people in greater Tokyo. Um, but Niigata is on the same main island. It's not in Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island. So it's on Honshu, the, the biggest island. Um, and it's over on basically the west side. So it gets lots of snow. It's very cold. And the powder that you get is unreal compared to New Zealand, where it's often icy. <laughs> right. So yeah. I had a great yeah. time there. And like I say, you know, I was vacuuming, cleaning, serving, doing whatever they wanted. But hey, Stephen, here's your free lift pass. You can ski every day for three months. Um, so it was an awesome opportunity. And then after the three months, I actually moved to Osaka, which is a really big city. And I taught English for nine months. So um, yeah, it's kind of a, a different background that led me to learn Japanese while I was there. Um, is, and it, then, is, it, is it like, uh, you know, Bill Murray lost in translation. Is that is that kind of the the Japanese you experience? You do feel, <laughs> yeah. It is. It's actually pretty accurate in some ways. You always, as a foreigner, you you realize after a couple of years there, because I went back, like I said, and lived there for four more years. So I've lived five years in Japan, and I think it's a place that you realize that you will always be very welcome. People are extremely kind, but you will always be a foreigner. And yeah. people forget that in Japan, 99% of the population is Japanese people. There's 1%, which is the foreign, you know, people from China, Korea, America. It's a very, very unusual place in the world. When you think about most countries have had a lot of inflow of migrants, mm. Japan is the one country or there might be some others, North Korea, maybe, yeah. <laughs> but there's not many that have, that are that ethnically like Japanese. So the point is that I've got friends who married Japanese women, but they will never be accepted in the same way that in New Zealand, if you've been here long enough, you know, you kind of are integrated into society. Um, so it's, it is a, it's kind of a wonderful place. I love Japan. It gets in your blood. You never forget it. The language is amazing. The food is fantastic. The people are kind, you know, the history 
thousands year old buildings you can walk into, but you always feel like you're in a bubble, that it's this bubble existence that one day I'll go home, you know? Yeah. So, um, but they, the law firm found out I spoke Japanese. So I went there, I spent four years, including two years in-house at Mitsui, which is one of the biggest trading houses. So that was fascinating. 5,000 people in a building, and I'm one of about 10 foreigners out of the 5,000. So learned a huge amount culturally, and then made my way, um, wanted to get back to New Zealand. We had young children by then, Mm. moved to Sydney where Norton Rose Fulbright had an office. And I ended up there for four years, again, mergers and acquisitions, gold mines, coal-fired power stations, you know, all different things, um, and had one year in-house at Caltex as well. And then left um, six years ago to return to Christchurch. So a big full circle. My one-year OE became like 11 years. Um, so that's that's the background. But it was always big law, you know, large deals, banks, corporates. And so when I came back, I kind of made a strategic choice that rather than joining one of the big New Zealand firms where I felt like I would probably be another cog in an already smooth running machine. Um, I actually chose to join uh, a large-ish provincial firm based in Christchurch. So we've got about 80 people in our firm. Um, We're not tiny, but we're not, you know, in the hundreds of people. So it's been a great fit for me and I've reinvented my own career and what I focus on. Well, yeah. So that's Parryfield Lawyers. um, I mean, you've really created uh, quite a space in terms of, um, and I think this is probably a good way of getting into the main topic for the podcast, um, social enterprises. Now, for some listeners, uh, they may have a sense of what they perceive to be a, a social enterprise, but I, I think it's probably good if we could get some some definition around that. And the, the reason why I say that is because uh, the law and social enterprises has slightly different definitions depending on where, who you are and where you are. And, and I mean, I, I say that by contrasting it, for example, to to the United States because they refer to them as benefit uh, enterprises. Um, yeah. So, uh, so how how would you define a, a social enterprise? What is it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll be honest with you, I'm using the term less and less rather than more and more, because I am worried that it's becoming its own thing. Um, And I'm actually hoping that the principles I'm about to tell you about have an impact on all companies, that it's not just something that is for those people over there in the corner who call themselves social enterprises. But the term itself um, came about a couple decades ago now, um, and it's basically referring to entities which are combining profit and purpose. If you, if you boil it all down, that's yeah. the essential thing. And so stepping back from the detail, you and I, Chris, we are fish in the water. We assume that the way that the world is is the way it is. This is how it's always been. So if somebody says to you, and this is a practical example, you know, I am looking to help young people who have some form of disabilities and have difficulty accessing jobs. Immediately, your mind is probably thinking, oh, he's talking about a charity. You know, he's going to he's going to get funding from Foundation North or RATA or some other big funder. He's going to get council support or government or something. 
as opposed to if I said to you, um, Chris, I'm about to start a cafe, immediately you're thinking, oh, shareholders, loans from banks, profit. So social enterprise is basically saying the heart of charity, the reason why you do something to help people, you know, young people with disabilities to get jobs is combined with the head of business. Oh, you're starting a cafe that takes some, you know, knowledge of business processes. And it's saying combine the heart and the mind. And all of a sudden you start thinking, well, actually, instead of setting up a charity, I'm going to start a business and that's going to be a cafe. Who am I employing? It's people who need access to jobs because they're not able to get jobs, you know, through their whatever disabilities. So it's a reconceptualizing of the role of business yeah. and saying, actually, it's not just about how many widgets you make or how much profit you make as a business, because we've been infected by Milton Friedman's conceptions that business is ultimately about shareholder return and shareholder primacy. All business is there just to make money for the shareholder to then have more money. You know, So this is saying, yeah. actually, business in the essence of what it does, it's actually doing some good. It's actually either employing people who need employment, it's making something that we need more of in the world, it's creating a new ecosystem you know, of advisors who are supporting people. It's so it's saying, I am taking the heart of charity and looking at it through the lens of business. So the term social enterprise, it has this idea that you're helping socially people who need it through business. And what I'm rephrasing it as talking more about impact, yes. because social to me, what about environmental impact? You yeah. know, what about cultural? What about other forms of impact? So I'm using the phrase impact enterprises a lot more and using social enterprise a lot less. Because I think in New Zealand, what we have the opportunity to do is actually reinvent the concepts of social enterprise, looking at it through a Te Ao Māori perspective and concepts like manakitanga and kaitiakitanga, not in a tokenistic box-ticking way, but in an actual, I understand what these terms mean and I want business to be about the 100-year plan rather than the next quarterly profit report. Okay, well, so, can, can, we un can we, there's a lot there, Stephen. Can we unpack some of that? Um, so let's just take yeah. a little step back. Um, uh, impact enterprises. Um, you know, I mean, you're making the point that you're using social enterprises, you know, less rather than more, and 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 I get that. Um, so for some listeners, they they won't know that. I mean, you wrote a book called Social Enterprises in New Zealand, a you know, legal handbook, um, which. Yep. Uh, which I came across uh, quite a few years ago. Um, we, we, sorry, when did, when did you publish it? When, 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 when that did was it come in twenty seventeen. So yeah. it was around the time of the Social Enterprise World Forum that was held in Christchurch for sixteen hundred people. Yeah, and it was a compilation of my thoughts about the future of business. And I did call it Social Enterprise in New Zealand yeah. a Legal Handbook, and I stand by it. Like it's still all the content is still good. Yeah, um, it's just I'm using the phrasing a little bit less of Social Enterprise. Well, maybe for the next edition, you could call it uh, Impact Enterprises in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, 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 I might do. Last yeah. year, I put out an, another book called mm. Reimagining Business. Yes. Um, and so that's a collection of essays. Yeah. And the the 
it's leading up to another book, which I'm working on now, which will just be called Reimagining Business. And that's really asking questions about what could the future be, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, if we look back, could we start now to model it and actually come up with a new legal form? That's what I'm advocating for. Right. Well, we'll we'll explore that in a bit of detail um, in a few minutes. Let's just go back to your your, your book, um, Social Enterprises mm-hmm. in New Zealand. Now, I came across this and, and actually spoke to you for the first time, and it would have been back in probably 2017. I don't think it was 18. It might have been 18. When I was doing some research for uh, my uh, a paper I was doing at Melbourne University as part of my uh, Master of Laws degree, And uh, one of the, you know, there was kind of the key takeouts that I took from it is is that you said that there are three key elements for a for a social, we'll call them an impact enterprise. You said first of all, there's the the entrepreneurial dimension, and that is the engagement and economic activity. And I guess this is what your point is. You know, when someone comes to you and says, "This is what I want to do." Rather than box them into saying, "Oh, well, this is profit motivated," or "This is impact motivated," you, you're really saying they just need to have an, a, an entrepreneurial dimension to themselves or, or their idea. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. And I, to be honest, uh, let's touch on one thing there because I think too often lawyers have the preconceptions about which legal vehicle to use. Yes. Um, and we end yeah. up steering our clients towards, well, that's a company or that's a trust or whatever. Yeah. But I think that what we really need to do is have our ears open to listen to the client and be able to actually focus on what's the purpose and the impact that you want to have. The outcome. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then look at the vehicle. And the the analogy I use is that if I'm going to buy a car and I go to the car lot and the, you know, the salesman's there and I'm like, well, what's your purpose? What do you want to use the car for? Because if you're going to drive up to go skiing, you probably want the four-wheel drive. Whereas if you want to just cruise around town and look cool, well, this convertible is probably the one for you. And it's the same way when it comes to legal vehicles, a company, limited partnership, a charitable trust, like these are all different legal vehicles, each with attributes that might be good or bad for the client. But too often we pigeonhole them into, oh, it's a company without really taking time to download things like where do they see their funding coming from? So I've seen quite a few people end up in company structures when if they'd spent a little bit more time, they probably would have gone down the charity road because ultimately they actually don't care about profits. So it's kind of a fundamental thing that we as lawyers, professionals need to get right to help the client in a truly rounded, holistic way. Well, well, look, you're absolutely right because this is, I guess, part of what the dilemma of social or impact enterprises were, was that the company vehicle is not necessarily a great fix from a, a legal standpoint, and that is because the law... Now, both under our Companies Act here in New Zealand and the Corporations Act uh, in uh, in Australia, requires directors uh, to place their duties to shareholders as a primacy. There's the sort of the, the the duty to shareholders as a primacy, and that is to make profit. Um, and hence, why in America, under their Corporations Act, uh, in the different states. Uh, they've passed legislation that enables directors not to have to make um, profit profit 
not not only the the driving motive, but in fact the only motive um, ahead of anything else. Uh, but our yeah. Companies Act hasn't moved with that to uh, offer amendments to enable directors to have the freedom to say, look, uh, we don't have to report every quarter about the profit that we're making and run the risk that we're getting going to be sued by our shareholders when we can set matters up because we've got other purposes. Um, what's I mean, what's your views on that? I agree with you. I think there is positive signs of change coming. Yes. So the the MP Duncan Webb from here in Christchurch Central, he's he had his ballot drawn out of the hat. You know how they have that members yeah. private members bills. Oh, yeah. Um, his was chosen, and his uh, change is really short. It's like one page, and it is to Section One Three One of the Companies Act, yeah. which, as we probably know, is duty to act in the best interests of the company. And what he's proposed is that there will be an addition, which says, in doing that, directors may consider, and may is really critical here, mm. may consider the treaty, the environment employees, other stakeholders. So there is about to be a change which should open up a bit more of a conversation point. Yes. Um, so that's good. I view that as an example, another symptom of a wider change which is going on when you look at words like impact investing, when you look at benefit corporations or B Corps rising, yeah. when you look at consumers demanding more from the companies that they are producing products. All of these things are symptoms of a big shift. So Duncan Webb's bill is going to help with this. And I had him on seeds, actually. He's actually a lawyer. So you should see if um, he'd be willing to come on <laughs> on your show and explain it because it's fascinating. But we spent an hour and a half talking about this in detail. Um, so I welcome it. It's awesome. It's good to see. But what I would like to see is that we go even further and that New Zealand, Aotearoa, becomes a model for the world where we've actually advanced this to the next level. And huh. so to do that, what I would be advocating for is correcting what I view as an anomaly. Huh. So if you have a charity, you must record your charitable purposes to get that status, right? So we kind of take that for granted. If you're going to be a charity, yeah. if you're in the club of charity, you have to say what you're going to do. What do you require to set up a company? A name? a director, a shareholder. That's literally it. And I could, while we're talking, I could log on to company's um, website. I could set up a company, like literally within 20, 30 minutes. The point is that there's no requirement that I specify what my purpose is. What yeah. is the impact that I want to have on the world through my company? So what I am advocating for is that we go further and we demand more from our companies and we actually require them to state what their impact is going to be, what their mission is in their constitution, and that this is something that we require. There would be two stages to this. Either you set up a new regime where those who opt in get the status of being an impact company. The other thing is that the these companies would need to report on how they're going. What are they doing to 
have the impact and the purpose. And that's not actually as far-fetched as it might seem because the XRB, which sets the accounting standards in New Zealand, right now they are about to introduce new climate-related disclosure requirements. So it's not out of the realm of possibility (laughs) that there's in the future requirements to report on your impact and your purpose. Yeah, well... So the first stage would be we have a new regime which you can opt into, and there are these impact companies. You are a little bit like America, benefit corporations, similar to that. The other, which would be more extreme, is that we actually require all companies to do this. And hey, if you want to be a company in New Zealand, you need to specify the impact and the purpose that you are seeking to have. And I think this would force boards to really understand what they're there for which is why I'm advocating for it. Well, well there's probably that's probably a good kind of segue because to to this extent the um second element in your book deals with the what you call the social dimension and that is a a primary and explicit social purpose or impact purpose. So, you know, we've we've dealt with the entrepreneurial dimension, you know, engagement in economic activity is a social dimension, but then you then talk about the governance dimension. What do you mean by that? That's the third element. What's the governance dimension? Well, governance is really close to my heart, actually. So I'm going to use it as a segue into talking about governance. (laughs) Um, Because as you know, you mentioned in the intro, I've I've just been the host of this series of podcasts on governance for the Mm. Institute of Directors. So for those who don't know, the IOD has more than 10,000 members in New Zealand. So it's like the gold standard of governance. Um, And I've done interviews with 13 directors now about trends challenges the future of governance. So I guess the elements that I'm thinking about here is that very often governance is deemed to be reviews of reports about how we did in the past. You know, oh, we held this event and we had 72 people attend and here's the outcome. And very often governance isn't doing future looking. It isn't casting its eye, looking 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead, and asking, what will this look like? What will our environment be? But that is the role of good governance. Good governance shouldn't just be focused on compliance in the past. It should be focused on strategy and where we're headed in the future. So to me, that's the elements that we need to be building in in all companies, actually. (laughs) And also with that, I think it's incumbent upon us if we're on a board to be asking about the makeup of the board, not just in terms of box ticking, you know, gender or ethnicity, but actually the skills diversity. So where are, you know, the scientists, where are the artists, where are the people who bring different perspectives? And are we guilty on our boards of shoulder tapping people who look like us and probably think like us and um, are not really challenging what the future could be. So those are some of my thoughts on governance and how it relates to, you know, thinking about a good business and what it will be thinking about. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting you say that there's, there's uh, some 10,000 members of uh, the Institute of Directors uh, in New Zealand. I mean, the Australian Institute of Company Directors has over 30,000 directors. So, I mean, here down under... Um, uh, there's a lot of directors who are at least members of these organisations, and I and I think you can apply a reasonably big multiplier 
to to yep. uh, to across the actual number of people who occupy the position of a director because most companies in Australia and New Zealand uh, employ less than five people uh, and they're usually you can say mum and dad type you know so incorporated sole trader organizations but they all have the same uh, set of rules and, and compliance requirements to well not all the same compliance requirements but a lot of common ones and this raises the issue of um, education and that's educating company directors to actually think you know about good governance and and what good governance can look like and I, I think this is what you're really advocating that it's it's an opportunity as the concept of social impact enterprises benefit corporations wh- whatever you want to call them is saying we'll, we'll actually look at what our purpose is and um, is there anything that we can do uh, to add value to society uh, even if it's with the example you use that is someone who says I want to open up a cafe I, I'm employing five people I'm giving five people jobs and that has yep. a positive impact Exactly. But if we could frame it through the lens of impact and mission, I think it would help the founder of the entity, but also it's going to help them explain to their staff, like, why are we here? Well, we're here to serve our customer, you know, and and a cafe cafe is an actually excellent example, because if you think about it, what's the community that can build up? Think of all the conversations that are going on. Um, One of our clients is... um, Kind and Crave Cafe up in Morningside in Auckland. So they well. would be, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, they would definitely. So if you talk to Nigel there, yeah. um, he would definitely fit within this idea of impact. And, you know, they, they deliberately set up this cafe within a quite traditionally, you know, industrial neighborhood mm-hmm. and are able to have community flourish. So I think that's just the, the thing is that whatever you're doing, you can apply these principles, which is why I come back to why I don't like the terminology to get in the way of the principles. Yes. Because yeah. if you think as well for a law firm, right, like a, a, a typical law firm, you don't think about governance. But actually, if you've got, say, you know, five, 10 partners or something, and they're sitting around the table, that's, you're a board, you know, you're thinking about governance, you're thinking about the future. So the more we can educate people to actually have a future focus, the better we're going to be as a society, I think, um, which is why I did the board matters. And the themes that are coming through is like, number one, being a lifelong learner. So these are experienced people I've been speaking to, like one guy, he's on the board of Air New Zealand, you know, it's like the top echelon. These are professional directors. That's all they do. Many of them, they're on like four or five, you know, NZX listed, ASX listed. That's what they do. But each one of them is there because they've said, I need to always be learning. I can't rest on what I've known in the past. And one of the people at the advanced directors course that stimulated the podcast said, I have a 20% depreciation rate. So every year I need to be upskilling another 20% and reinventing myself. So learning is just vital and we need to be continually doing it. So these podcasts, they're like 15 minutes long downloads about director's insights. Yeah, yeah but you, you must be, uh, from your perspective, you must be learning a lot. Um, 
I mean, I get a huge amount out of these podcasts. I mean, I like to think yeah. that I know a bit about the law, and yet you're always coming out of it with uh, with having learnt a significant amount of of, of areas that you, you haven't really had a chance to consider necessarily on your day to day practice. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's why I do it. I mean, the the other principle that I would encourage listeners to embrace, and you clearly have already embraced it, is curiosity. Yeah. That is the starting point for unlocking doors that would otherwise be shut. So yeah, I learn way more, I think, than anybody. I'm, I've listened, obviously, to all 316 episodes of Seeds. Yeah. <laughs> and I've learned a huge amount from all the people. Um, and there's definitely themes which keep coming through about how we need to mentor the next generation, for example, how we have to always be curious, how we have to support each other. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about the next generation of a, of a stat shoot. Uh, I wanted, we've talked about the companies uh, issues, both uh, New Zealand Companies Act and the Australian Corporations Act. And how it's not really legally a great fit for social enterprise because of that um, profit primacy or shareholder primacy. But New Zealand's about to get a new incorporated societies act. Uh, well, it's it's got it, but we, we're now moving into the transition stage. And it replaces uh, the 1908 act. So it replaced an act uh, that was over 110 years old Um uh, what are your big takeouts for you from a, an opportunity that the new Incorporated Societies Act uh, presents for social impact? Well, I'm really glad you used the word opportunity there because yeah. I am. I'm. Uh, we've done about seven online seminars for about mm-hmm. about 250 people have registered for them. So we've got a whole information hub on our website about incorporated societies. And it would be really tempting as a lawyer to say, there's more regulation coming, watch mm-hmm. out, you know, and what I'm trying to frame it as this is an opportunity for you to revisit who you are. And there's two ways that you can do this. So there's 23,000 incorporated societies oh. and there's 8,000 8, of them are registered charities. So that's the kind of the split, if you like. What I'm saying to them is number one, the new incorporated societies act means you will need to re-register. There's no getting out of it. You have to re-register. And what happens, that, what, what happens if you don't? You're going to sail off into the sunset. <laughs> Cease <laughs> to exist. You will not exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yep. and and look, yep. there's going to be a lot that will 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 do that. I mean, uh, you'll know from your own experience whether it's the, you know, it's the the local lawn bowling um, club is an incorporated society. It's been incorporated for a hundred years, and it's run by volunteers who, you know, fill in a form once a year and don't really appreciate what's involved with um, yep. staying in existence. Yep, exactly. Well, that's right, and. And so what we've done is put a whole bunch of material out about what's required um, and how you would transition. But there's going to be a long transition period. It's going to be like two and a half years from next year. So it's not going to be till 2026 that people are actually no longer on the register. So, um, But the first thing is they need to have new rules. Therefore, get out your rules, which were probably signed in 1972. Using <laughs> and, a precedent that was developed in 1954. <laughs> probably. And nobody has looked at for decades. We actually have one right now where they've said, we don't have a copy of our rules and company's office doesn't have a copy. So yeah. what do we do? So this happens. Um, but the point is many 
in corporate societies have no idea what their rules say. And I can guarantee you that they are not complying in at least one or two material ways, whether it's, oh, we, we were meant to be giving three weeks notice of our AGM, really? Oh, we're meant to have a treasurer, really? You know, like there's yeah. so many things that people just won't have done. So the yeah. first positive is reinvent your rules to reflect how you actually operate. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is a more a deeper one, which gets at the point you're making is, is this structure even right for us? Remember how I was talking about before the legal vehicles? Incorporated societies are incredibly political. You have annual general meetings where people go through a popularity contest of who's going to be the president, the treasurer, you know, the secretary. And I, this is, I'm not making this story up. I remember on a Friday evening getting a phone call from the president of an incorporated society, very friendly, nice person saying, oh, by the way, just letting you know, we've got our AGM tomorrow. Um, I, I've heard some rumblings, uh, not sure what's going on. I'll give you a call on Monday. Monday, I get the call. I hear the president. It's a different voice. And what's happened? The old executive have been voted out. The new executive is in. They're taking it in a different direction. So. I've even heard the case of an incorporate society having the executive be outvoted because an interest group made sure that 20 people came along and got rid of the old. The first act of the executive was to wind up the incorporated society. So it is a very political type of entity. So what I'm asking is actually, and also it's very member-driven, membership-based. So if let's say you started with 20 or 30 people, but now you've got like eight people left, it's probably worth asking a question, would it be better if we were just a charitable trust and actually transition from incorporated society to charitable trust? And with the great Craig Fisher, who's an accountant up in Auckland, I wrote an article about this, about what are the positives and negatives of both legal structures. Um, charity services will allow you to keep the same registration number as a charity. So as you know, you're just changing the entity type, but you would need to get a new IRD number and transition any employees over to the new entity. But that's the, the point is, what an amazing opportunity to revisit who we are and why we exist. But also, Either, yeah, but also, yeah. Stephen, I mean, wouldn't you, it's also a great opportunity to ask that critical question of, you know, what's the purpose? And I think that's what you're saying is, why do we exist? Yeah. What, what are we seeking to achieve out of this? And for some incorporated societies that have been around for a long time, they probably haven't rethought really that one through. And they've got that chance now. I agree with you completely. And also, it's this the principle here shouldn't just apply to incorporated societies. It should be for charitable trusts or mm. other organizations. Because I think many times, and some of us are on boards where we probably haven't taken the diligence of reading the rules. Many times, charities in particular are chasing funding. So 30 years ago, they started as a preschool, but then there was an opportunity to do some high school after school care or something. And then, oh, there's a suicide prevention week that we want to get behind. And, oh, actually, we could help students transition into university life and provide support for them and mental health. And you look at it and you go, our purposes, if you read them, <laughs> is yeah. to help preschoolers adjust, you know, 
and now we're helping university students. And this happens quite often where there's been such a mission drift that you actually do need to refresh the very core purposes of why you're there. Oh, look, look, absolutely. And, and I, I think the issue with charities, though, I mean, of course, our Supreme Court, with Greenpeace, uh, uh, of course, have had to deal with the issue of can Greenpeace be a, be a charity? Um, and it's, it's not yep. easy when because we went through a period of time, I think it was about maybe about eight years ago, where suddenly a bunch of charities got deregistered because they were deemed to have political purposes rather than um, that narrow definition of charitable purposes. So it's, it's certainly exactly. an area where, where, where getting legal advice around this area would need to be sought out. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And it sounds so self-serving to say that, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and just so you know, I'm on the charity services sector group. So that's yeah. a group of about 20 of us who give them input. So I see like at the coalface, I see what they're going through. And also I've helped about 40 different groups set up as charities in the last year. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of, I wear multiple hats. Like I do the for-profit things, mergers and acquisitions, but then I also do the not-for-profit side. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think this is definitely, definitely an area that people could focus on more. And and let's be honest, the Trust Act 2019 is now in force as yep. of a year and a half ago. I can guarantee you most charities haven't thought through whether they need to update their rules, but they probably do. And most organizations don't actually comply with their rules. So this it's always, I think, a chance to refresh and revisit and say, well, why do we exist again? Yep. Now, one of the other enhancements, just as we move off the Incorporated Societies Act, is the mandatory obligation to have some form of dispute resolution mechanism. Um, what Do you see this as being uh, advantageous? Well, I, I mean, I'm interested in your views because you've got a real specialty within disputes. Mm. I view it as, again, a glass half full approach, which is this is a positive thing because incorporated societies in the past – because of, remember, the political nature I was mentioning, yeah, yeah. and quite often there are these longstanding feuds and disputes among the members. So if we now in the future will have some sort of a mechanism for disputes to be dealt with, I view that as a positive thing. The interesting thing will be whether people end up adopting bespoke dispute resolution procedures specific for their situation or whether they rely on what's in the act. Um, we're working through right now, you know, what would this look like if we designed a dispute resolution procedure? Because there is a lot of leeway for organizations to come up with their own concepts or their own ways of doing things. So again, I view that this is positive, but yeah. What's your well, thoughts well, on it? Well, Stephen, uh, disputes are very corrosive. Um I mean, I've never had a client say to me that they enjoyed a dispute and they're looking forward to the next one. Um, I don't think that's a reflection on, on on my capability as a lawyer. I think it just is, um, uh, unfortunately, for some individuals and organisations, you can't avoid getting into disagreements. And, and disagreements aren't necessarily bad things. Um, disagreements are often an opportunity for different views to be uh, properly debated and 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 argued uh, arguing sounds negative, but arguing can be a positive uh, experience when different perspectives are brought to the table and they've thought through to a rational or the right outcome. You needed to kind of go through the dispute to do that. But in the meantime, 
if the dispute isn't uh, managed well, and a lot of disputes aren't managed well uh, because some people um, don't have the skill set or uh, it's not on their agenda, um, it, it can do a lot of damage. Uh, they, it can be one of the most stressful, distressing experiences that people can go through. And I'm talking about this at all levels. It doesn't matter whether it's a personal dispute or whether it's one through something you're passionate about, even if it's, for example, I mean, sports sports law is an area that I've had a bit of involvement in over the years with incorporated societies. It could be the local tennis club, and um, it can really do damage to communities if they're not handled right. So I think it's great that the Act has uh, an obligation to put a mechanism in. I love your idea a lot, like it a lot, of actually having an incorporated society sit down, the, the you know the governance and the people involved, the stakeholders, and say, should we design something that suits what we're trying to do better, so that uh, you know if a dispute arises, and you know sometimes they do, uh, quite often for some uh, it happens more than they want that we can actually get something positive out of it and and certainly mitigate the negative effects. Um, and, and a lot of the negative effects are delay, cost, um, stress. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, that's good. Hey, well, look, let's talk now, um, if we can. We move on to the, uh, the Impact Unconference. And I want to jump to the first one because you were involved in this. I think you were, you were this was... Sort of yep. part of you know, part of you're one of the founders, part of your idea around yeah, this. Yeah, if you wanted to yeah. give a name, I guess you could call me the founder. <laughs> the found, call it the founder. It was uh, it was back in 2020. It was uh, it was in Wellington. I um, had to you know it's right in the middle of a pandemic. Your timing was <laughs> interesting yeah. there. Look, tell us about how it came about. You know what was involved. You know what what was the takeouts of the first conference. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So actually, it was held all online because mm. of the pandemic. So we were originally going to hold it in Christchurch, and I was planning to get 300 or 400 people together. So just for your listeners who aren't familiar with an unconference, you basically turn to the participants or the people coming to the conference and say, what are you an expert in? What would you like to hear? So typically, on the first day, you get people pitching. And yep. someone will say, yeah. well, I I love podcasts, so I'm happy to do a session on podcasting. And then so people vote like, okay, we like podcasting. Oh, I'm I'm an expert in the future of AI and technology. So, okay, we'll, we'll have a session on that. And then you decide the topics based on the participants. So we had about 350 people who signed up to attend the unconference. It was held mm-hmm. over an afternoon, so basically 12 to 5. We had seven different Zoom rooms. One room was just about community. And so you could go there and just chill out and talk to people. And then the other ones were running half-hour sessions. So half-hour on AI in the future, half-hour on Tadeo in the workplace, half-hour on workplace stress. And, you know, so very varied, no one theme overarching apart from impact. (laughs) So that's the, that was the theme. And then, yeah, I had an amazing team. There must've been like 25 people behind the scenes who are obviously moderating each of the zoom rooms and introducing the speakers and then the speakers themselves. So we ended up, I think with about 36 different sessions in one short period, one day. 
Yep. And it's all available online. If you go to the impactunconference.nz, all the videos have been uploaded there. And yeah, it was kind of an experiment. It, like I said, it was like three weeks after the original, original lockdown. So yes, right. it was kind of a chance for people to come together in one of the first events that had been run all, entirely online in the context of a global pandemic. So I'm quite proud of it. And we did a 90 page what we learned document that I know other people who've run conferences have used as a resource, because our theme was, you know, community, how do we build this? So we built in, you know, poetry readings and songs and music in amongst the conference, but kind of unusual. Yeah. And yeah, my plan is to run another one, which will be based in Christchurch. But um, timing wise, I'm just kind of keeping in my I on just the, it's just hasn't felt right with so many lockdowns and organizing speakers and then having to delay things. And so I'm just waiting to get the timing right, but I'll hold one hopefully within the next year or so. Um, I, I think you're looking at hopefully October, 2023 is your, your target date, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the plan at the moment, the plan. but it's flexible. And yeah. key theme, reimagining business as a force for good. That's a great theme. Yeah, yeah. Well, it all, hopefully, if people engage with my content, um, whether it's the podcast or articles or books, there's a consistent theme which comes through, which is how can we reimagine business for the future? And I think as professionals, you know, whether it's you, Chris, and the work that you do, or other lawyers listening, or other people listening, I think we can always have a role to play of pushing our clients to be helping them to get on board with mm. a much longer term perspective. Um, you know, that's, I think that's the ultimate gift we can give as professionals. So that's Absolutely. the theme that underlies everything I do. Oh, that's exciting. And of course, if people want to get more updates about that, they can go onto your, your website. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we can in the show notes. I can send you links, or you can right. copy paste them in, and people can find them. Right. Yeah. And so I, I'm. I mean, I'm trying. What I'm trying to do, if if there are lawyers listening, what what I'm trying to do, or anyone listening, really, yeah. what I'm trying to do is be a catalyst for change, and be a conduit to cross groups. So that's why I get involved in a lot of things, and that's why I try to have a voice at different tables. Because there's this great saying which says, if you're if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. Yeah. And so I like the concept that I can be on the XRB advisory panel, giving them input on accounting standards. I can be on charity services sector group. I can be a member of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. You know, I can be uh, the chair of the Global Alliance of Impact Lawyers for Asia Pacific. I can be on the community finance board focusing on social housing, where we've raised $100 million for that. I can be involved in Papakainga housing. You know, like each of these, any one of them, you would say, well, they're not really related, but I would say they're all interrelated because I'm able then to bridge the differences between the different groups. And I think as lawyers, we have a unique role to play because we don't necessarily represent any one group. You know, I don't represent mental health charities or youth charities, but I can bridge both of them. So yeah, I just encourage people to think broadly about your career and where you're getting involved because we need more people to do this bridging role. 
Well, look, an area that I'm very interested in is access to justice. And, um, I mean, you, you reminded me with, a, with another saying, which is that, you know, volunteering is the, is the tax that you pay for your place within the community and the planet. Um, I, I do have this perception, it could be wrong, that a, a lot of volunteering in New Zealand is, is done by a small minority. Um, I mean, there's a lot that goes um, unnoticed as well, but particularly in our space as lawyers, um, actually helping people without an expectation for payment, but just to do it just because it's the right thing to do, um, doesn't seem to be something that uh, our profession um, does particularly well. Um, I, I know there's always exceptions. I don't want to create outrage. There are some great people out there that do a lot of work, good work, without any expectation of being paid. But it's 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 not easy. And I, and and of course, you know, life's complicated. We're all busy. You know, we've got practices to run. We need you know bills to pay, like everyone else. But I, I see this. You know, the opportunity of social impact could really fit in well with the legal profession to say. Why don't we look at more opportunities to get people actively involved in things that that they can get some purpose and passion with that will make a, an impact and a social change? What's your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree completely. And I just uh, did a post on LinkedIn. You should have a look at it, actually, yeah. um, about a partner who retired after 42 years with our law firm. Wow. So his name is Ken Lord. So public yeah. shout out to him. Yeah. And what I said there um, in reflecting on the mentorship and what I've learned from him, it was all about people. And it was about curiosity about your client, getting to know them, really getting to know them, taking an interest in them. And I think too often we do get focused on our six minute units or billables budgets. And we forget that what an incredible privilege we have to be lawyers, to have been given the education that we have, that we actually have a role to play in society beyond our individual selves and how much money we're making. Um, I think it's something that we've lost sight of, but I do think that the next generation has a much greater awareness of this. And I think in job interviews these days, instead of the last question being, what's the bonus structure or whatever, yeah. it's more, how can I have impact through this role? What what will it mean for the, you know, the community and things? Well, I yeah. think a large part of it though, Stephen, interested in your views on this is, you know, how we, um, I guess, I, I don't know, see or value what the legal profession does and what lawyers do. Um, often it's, well, not often, but, you know, there's that measurement of the successful lawyer um, marked in financial terms. Um, rather than saying, um, well, um, w w what are they contributing to make, you know, their community, you know, their city, province, country, or the world a, a better place and celebrating it for those that actually do it simply because they want the world to be a better place and not actually doing it to make money. Um, in America, some of the state's uh, bar associations require lawyers, all lawyers within their bar association, to report as to the amount of pro bono work they do. And I, I think that's a great idea because it gives a measure so that you could objectively look at what uh, individual lawyers are doing at an individual level, but also as a as an entire bar association of that state, 
are doing in terms of providing professional legal services without expecting to be paid for it. Um, I mean, do you think that could be a good initiative in New Zealand? Yeah, I think it. I think it would be. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's not enough. I think the reality is that many firms would say, "Oh, you know, four hours a year or something." <laughs> you know, like it, it, well done. You know, for the community law center, you went three times or something. I, I think there's a lot of um, scope here. So that yeah. maybe we could have another chat on that. Yeah. Okay. Hey, so, um, so Stephen, I wanted to talk to you about impact investing. Uh, specifically, what is it? Is it happening in New Zealand and what role does the law play in it? That's a great question. I'm glad you've asked it. It is definitely happening in New Zealand. Um, oh. I'm seeing a lot of it. And I think just to frame it as to what are we talking about, it's taking the concept of investing, which everybody understands. You know, you've got a million dollars and you put it into a project knowing you're going to get a certain financial return. So impact investing is the same thing, but there's also impact there's yes. something beyond the financial return. So as an example, I put in a million to this particular business or initiative, and I get my financial return. They pay me back. But what do they do? They are helping um, teenagers with their mental health. So therefore, the impact is beyond the interest rate beyond the return of the capital, it's also knowing that I helped 100 young people improve their mental health. And that's just one example. Another example is a group that I'm involved in called Community Finance. So yeah. I'm the chair of the board there. And what we're doing is connecting philanthropic investors with community housing projects. Oh. So oh. we've um, when I start talking about this, people say, oh, great. So what, you've raised like $10,000 or maybe 20000 but we've actually raised $93 million in the last two years. That's phenomenal. And what we're, yeah. 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 And, and the pitch is pretty simple. It's saying to philanthropic investors, so super wealthy foundations or people, you we know that you've got a lot of money. Instead of putting that $5 million into a term deposit, where the yep. profits are going to go offshore to an Australian bank. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you take the 5 million, invest it in a social housing project where at the end of it, there's going to be 110 houses built that will get people into really clean, green, environmentally friendly homes. Yeah. And you'll get paid back the amount that you invested. Okay. Plus the longitudinal study would show us that the children are not living in their cars, you know, that their parents have stable incomes and that they are growing up in a house which is safe and better for them. Therefore, they're probably having better educational outcomes. They're probably going on to study something that they love. So 20 years from now, that house that got built, you yep. know, it's way beyond the financial return that you got from it. It's also about there's now a home where dozens of people have been impacted. So that's what impact investing is. Yep. And um, relatively recently, I helped write a report with the Center for Social Impact. Okay. So they're based out of Foundation North, which is... Yep. They have 1.6 billion under management wow. <laughs> and they give out funding to not-for-profits and charities and the like. 
And the Center for Social Impact is one of their initiatives. So we wrote a paper um, called Impact Investing in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So we can, I'll, I can send you the link and you can add it to the show notes and people can click. It's a short 10-page summary of impact investing and what some examples in New Zealand. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, that'd be great if you could. I'm sure people would love to delve into that to see what's actually going on. Hey, now the law's role in this. How how can the law assist, uh, you know, to enable or facilitate impact investing? Yeah, it's an awesome question because I view lawyers as having a critical role. The first thing is just talking about it and raising the awareness level for our clients. That actually, hey, you know, we we all probably have clients who have quite a lot of money helping them understand that there's new ways of thinking about how they use their money for social good. So that's a simple yeah. way. But then the other way is that we need lawyers who know how to draft these agreements that are about impact investing and social return and you know and even reporting you know like these are all documents that lawyers can help with um, the other way is that there's a massive opportunity as we do more reporting um, to be drafting causes in contracts that are helpful for impact investing so the classic example is that the xrb right now is going through consultation about climate-related disclosures. Sure. So climate-related disclosures, that's in the future. Companies will need to talk about what the climate impact is of what they do. But really related to this is think of the thousands of contracts, hundreds of thousands of contracts, which right now don't have climate-related reporting requirements or causes well it doesn't appear so again, it, do, it doesn't appear on balance sheets like um you take a company like rocket lab yeah they don't report on their balance sheet what the co2 impact is of you know launching rockets off the mahia peninsula um that just yeah. that doesn't appear and yeah. so i so i kind of get that and i think that's a great thing because i mean certainly for consumers i mean not there's a lot of people out there consuming rockets um but you know, for consumers to understand, you know, what what what's actually the the below the balance sheet or off the balance sheet impact of yes. using these products and services. I'm glad you raised that because yeah. I think in a decade from now, indefinitely two decades from now, mm. <laughs> this will just be commonplace that companies are reporting on a much wider range of things, which comes back to my earlier part yeah. when we were talking about social enterprise and reporting on your impact. It's all bound up. These are sure. all symptoms of the same movement, yeah. which is greater transparency, a greater ethical lens on what we're doing and why we're doing it. So the short answer to your question is lawyers have a pivotal role to play as companies come to grip with what is this going to mean, you know, for our business going forward. I mean, it, it sounds almost like, and, and I know that social enterprise, you know, um, uh, benefit uh, corporations you know, in the US, I know they've been around for for a while, but it, it, it seems to me my perception is, is that we're really at a uh, at an apex on in, in history where where this is now becoming more of um, uh, an orthodox or norm rather than an exception to the rule where people are thinking about you know where does business sit and, and what impact does it actually have on the wider the wider good is that your perception I mean I know you're very involved but I mean is that your perception? <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. And I hope that someday someone will listen back to this podcast and yeah. hear what we were talking about in 2022, yeah. because I think this is a critical moment in time. And too often, I think we forget that it hasn't always been the way it is today. You know, if you went back 200 years ago, mm. 300 years ago, there was no companies the same way we think of them today. Yeah. There was no concept of director liability. There was no section 131. Mm. You know, yeah. these are all fictional things that we created and therefore we can change them. And that's the critical thing for, from my perspective as a lawyer is how can we go about bringing about positive change so that we do look back in, you mm. know, our great grandchildren, right? Look yes. back yeah. and they listen to this and they go, wow, look at the societal changes that Chris and Stephen were talking about and how they were saying they were symptoms of bigger changes that were happening. Wouldn't it be great if it actually mm. moved that way and we can help that to happen? Yeah, no, I'm super excited about it. It's a, it, Look, it's such a great area and it's 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 something that I think people, if if they're not aware of what's going on with these things, they should delve into it. So, hey, look, what you could send me for the listening notes would be great. Look, let's move yeah. into the the last topic that as we start winding up this episode of the the Law Down Under podcast, let's talk about your podcasts um, for a moment. <laughs> it seems kind of kind of strange one podcaster interviewing another podcaster about their their podcast. There's there's almost something circular about it. But um, look, tell me about seeds. What was the, what was the inspiration for it? In fact, even how did you come up with the name? Uh, well, I'm really first of all, I'm really glad with the cha- name that I chose because it's <laughs> been able to evolve over yeah. time. Yeah, it, <laughs> so it came about. Yeah, it came <laughs> about at the time of the Social Enterprise World Forum in 2017, yeah. and I kept meeting these amazing people, social entrepreneurs, and people starting really cool stuff. And I thought there's nobody talking about their stories. I could buy equipment, surely. You know, I like listening to podcasts. How hard could it be to put it out myself? So that was the origins of it. And that was September 2017 that I did the first one. And as we're recording this today, I just released episode 318. Wow. And so my format is actually really similar to yours. And I'm glad to see you're approaching Mm. it this way. It's what I call long form podcasting. So I'm not asking in somebody, you know, give me the five minute version of who you are and what you do. Mm. I'm diving deeper with them. I'm going into little avenues of their life and you mentioned your grandmother. Tell me what you appreciate about her. You know, you mentioned Italy. How long did you live there? So I'm able, the space is there to ask open questions, let the guests talk, and then reflect back some of the principles that we can learn from their life. Yes. So the first half of the show is always about the guest, where they're from, the papa of their journey. And then the second half is usually about what do you do today? And then the reason it's called seeds, there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is what are the seeds that led to the person doing what they do today? So I like to trace that journey with people. And then the other reason for seeds is that each episode I hope is like a seed that the listener might actually listen, download, it would plant something in them and they would think, I didn't have the courage to start my own business, but now I've heard about Michael Mail who founded Cookie Time, he told Stephen about how he failed twice, and those failures were the compost 
that led to his multi-million dollar success. So I love that concept that we can always be learning, we can always be curious, and we can learn from each other. Yep. So that's Fantastic. the heart behind seeds. Mm. And like I say, seeds, as soon as I say the word, yep. immediately it evokes something in your mind, whether it's the same thing that I just described. Yeah. <laughs> it, seeds to me, they're like magic. You know, you hold them in your hand and they're they're hard and they're black or brown and there's no life there. You plant them and it literally feels to me like magic beans, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk. Like you water it, you give it warmth light nutrients and all of a sudden you get a tree that didn't exist so it's the same with the the podcast and that's why the name seeds transcends talking with social enterprises and these days like i've talked to a six-year-old i've talked to a 92 year old i've talked to you know oceanographer i've talked to someone who's Go, wants to go to space like it's such a variety of people and my aim is that every week the the listener will be like that's different <laughs> that's completely different to the previous week but overarching everything is purpose and why do you do what you do so yeah i really enjoy doing it well look i mean you, you've even <laughs> you, you've even interviewed a, a former chief justice of england and wales uh, lord thomas um and oh, that's I, true, I, yeah. I found found that a fascinating episode and you know slightly related i mean you, you you've interviewed the the dean of canterbury law school ursula chair and and it was yep. interesting to learn about her life and 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 the pathway that she or the the the, the pathway she's traveled with her four different careers that she appears to have, you know, that she's had. Um, so it's a, look, it's, it's a great podcast. I think you do a great job. Now tell me about the, the your latest podcasting um, venture, which uh, which is all with the Institute of Directors in New Zealand, um, and this is the Board Matters. How did, how did that start? Where, where are you at? Where is it going to go? Oh, I'd love to. Um, so I facilitate for the IOD. I mm. help them on their course, which is called the CDC or the company director course. Yeah. And so I do the legal portion, basically four hour download on legal risk in New Zealand for directors. So I've gotten to know them. I helped uh, on a panel at their recent leadership summit. And they asked me to attend their new course, which is called the Advanced Directors Course. So this is the next level beyond the company director course. And I was sitting in the room with 25 other really experienced directors. You know, you've got somebody there who's on the board of Air New Zealand. You've got a professional director who sits on five different boards. You've got NZX listed company directors, amazing wealth of knowledge in the room. And the opening question in that course was, if you were writing a book on governance, what would the title be? Ooh. And I thought, what an yeah. awesome premise mm. for a podcast. So mm. I pitched it to IOD and I said, look, I think I could get some really good content if you had me interview some of those participants. So it's 13 interviews. Each mm. one of them is about 15 minutes. So they're not long form like this is, yeah. Um, yeah. but they're downloads of the directors. The opening question, what would your book title be? Then I follow up with what are the trends and challenges in governance you're seeing? And then I follow up with what's one thing you've learned that you wish you had known at the start of your governance career. Right. So I'm, and it's very diverse. There's seven women, six men. Um, we've got Maori, Pacifica, you know, all different backgrounds, different industries, 
and yet you merge them together and there's principles that come through which are obvious from what i've been saying totally life is about learning Mm. stay curious your journey never ends and so all of these things come through as themes and then another theme is te ao maori tikanga te reo What's the role of that for the boardroom? So it's an initiative. Um, I think the first week uh, it's had like 1,200 listens, wow, um, which is pretty yeah. good for yeah. like a seven-day brand new podcast. Um, so I'm hopeful that people will hear it. They'll share it with their friends. If they're on a board, they'll tell their board members about it and that it will be a free resource for anybody to access. So that's the heart behind it. That's fantastic. So, okay, well, for listeners there, that's a great podcast to uh, to click the follow button on and uh, and get into it. Stephen yeah. Moe, Christchurch-based uh, corporate commercial lawyer and uh, advisor to impact uh, enterprises and businesses, as well as uh, as well as a podcaster. Thank you for joining me on the Law Down Under podcast. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, Chris. I've really appreciated it. And just a tautoko or an acknowledgement of your mahi, your work here, um, because we need to have more conversations. We need to hear from more people. So thank you for we facilitating do. that through your podcast. Really we appreciate do. it. We do. Kira, thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N. .co.nz. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.